0: This is a special Godpod which was recorded as part of our McDonald Lecture Series 2016. The McDonald Lecture Series is a series of lectures generously sponsored by the McDonald Agape Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. So, welcome to those of you who are listening to this. As one of our GodPod recordings, and we are um, delighted in today's GodPod. We have uh, myself, Graham Tomlin, we have Jane Williams, as usual. We have Chris Tilling, who has been on uh, several GodPods in the past, as our New Testament lecturer here at St. Melitus College. But we are very pleased, indeed, to have Professor Amos Young uh, from Fuller Theological Seminary in uh, Pasadena in California. So it's great to have you with us. And so Amos has just given us a a, a really fascinating lecture on... um, Uh, the spirit uh, and mission, uh, reading theology from a spirit and missiological perspective. And uh, we just want to engage you in conversation with some of the themes that were coming out as part of that. So, um,
1: Graham, do you think, um, to begin with, listeners would like to know about Amos's bow bow tie?
2: (laughs) They would. I think they would. Amos, tell us about your bow tie. My wife, who's sitting right there, can probably tell you better about the bow tie. I put it on because she got it for me for Father's Day. Uh, oh. earlier really this morning. Okay, let's, yeah. not,
3: let's not go down there with the with the jokes about the bow tie then, because yeah, oh. it's clearly a gift, be, all right? Be so tactful, so We're going to do a U-turn now, Graham, all right? <laughs> <laughs> very good.
0: It's a very colourful bow tie, has to be said. Thank you, honey. It's very <laughs> good. So well done, Alva. But um, uh, just to, to, to launch in Amos, you were talking um, really helpfully about... Um, uh, reading scripture pneumatologically reading scripture through the lens of the spirit and you've um, taken us through a great sweep of reading scripture looking for and looking through if you like the spirit's yeah. presence in scripture yeah. and I, i'd just like to tease that out a little bit more and, and um in particular i guess there are many ways into scripture yeah. you've taken the spirit as a way into the reading the bible I guess other, other Christians in the past have often taken, you know, Christology, Christ as yeah. the key to Scripture, mm-hmm. you going into it that way, or the doctrine of creation, or, um, or maybe even the atonement as the sort of central theme, everything leading up to the atonement mm. and going on from that. What, what do you think are the advantages in reading the Scripture in this way, in terms of reading it within, you know, from a pneumatological perspective, yeah. reading it through the lens of the Spirit, as opposed to some of those other uh, ways into Scripture? Right.
2: Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I wouldn't put it quite as opposed to. Okay. In other words, I think that um, such a reading is what I would call complementary. Yeah. In some respects, it really presumes that there are these many ways of reading Scripture and that they are all mutually helpful at a certain level,
1: yeah.
2: right? I do think that maybe you could say, at least this is in part what I would want to invite us to think about, that there's a certain sense in which uh, a Christological reading, a reading of God as creator, and a reading, uh, if you will, after Pentecost, as I've suggested it, are a kind of threefold cord around a deeply theological reading, yeah. according to, if you will, the identity of this, if you will, triune God, yeah. right? That, uh, yeah, we can have a, a kind of version that says, here's how it looks from a, through the life of Christ, and all of a sudden, <coughs> reading of it through the Spirit is now reading of it also in light of Christ as the Anointed One. So they're complementary as opposed to oppositional. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess one of the other um, aspects of it that struck me as you were talking was that in a way a pneumatological reading of the Scripture actually draws us, the reader, into the story of Scripture, especially if you read it as a Christian, yeah. because you're conscious that you know you are. Um, filled with the same spirit as the as the right. people you're, you're reading about right. and, and um, the same spirit that inspired scripture is the one who also indwells the Christian too yes. um, you're drawn into uh, the reading of scripture and it makes you kind of part of the whole process and it struck me that's, that's quite different from the way we normally read the Bible in our more academic environments where we tend to view it rather objectively and, and distantly and actually one of the values perhaps in universities tends to be you know that dispassionate, uh, objective reading, where you don't involve yourself in uh, the reading of a text, whereas it seems to be pneumatological reading of Scripture is actually quite different
2: yeah. from that. Yeah. So um, there's a certain sense in which I think that growing up Pentecostal um, led me to instinctively not see a distance between what I read in the Bible and my or our own lives. Now there's a, sort of sometimes a, potentially a danger to that where um, we presume maybe a bit too much. Yeah. But um, from that Pentecostal point of view, you're I think exactly right that a pneumatological reading was not really one that was even very conscious about the Spirit to begin with. It was really about how do I, Holy Spirit, experience what this text says and so it was never really a reading focused on the spirit as much as, if you will, a reading, at least an attempt to read, if you will, in the spirit. Yep. One very conscious about asking the spirit to enable us as we read. We might say that that's the illuminating function of the spirit, um, although again, it's uh, from, from the Pentecostal perspective, it was always a matter of well, these are, this is what happened with the earliest followers of Jesus. They should be what's happening with us as well. So there was that way of this theological and expectant way of reading. Uh, yeah, I think you could say that's a pneumatological read, at least the way I would talk about it. But folks can get along quite, quite well without even mastering that multisyllable word pneumatological. I mean, that's a mouthful, to be sure.
1: <laughs> One of the things that you get drawn into this way of reading scripture is the Spirit's mission, um, and I'd I'd love to unpack a bit more what, how you understand mission. I was interested. Um, I was just jotting down some of the ways in which you described it: empowering witness, um, uh, enabling us to, to do what Jesus did, do some of the great mm-hmm. works, signs and wonders, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, martyrdom, the, mm-hmm. w- that kind of work, use of the word. W- um, Witness, Witness mm-hmm. which is in suffering, yeah. um, but it also seems to me that if you if you read it back, particularly into the Old Testament, you, you, there's the sort of mission of justice. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Do you see that as part of this?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So what's maybe uh, maybe I shouldn't say this too, loud, but I guess it is what it is. Um, I've actually worked through um, the full the whole part of the Old Testament. Um, about 40,000 words. That's about half my book. And then I finished a section on the Gospels, but I actually have yet to write the chapters on starting with Romans and the rest of the the New Testament. Um, I'm praying, God willing, that that'll happen sometime in this coming academic year, but we'll see. But what struck me, was, for instance, when you do look at many of the references to the divine breath in the Old Testament, which I really went over very, very quickly uh, in in my talk tonight. Uh, Oholiab and Basileel, for instance, are in Exodus, these artisans who are given the spirit. And that invites, again, an envisioning of what it might mean to participate in the mission of God as artisans, if you will. Uh, according to these references in Exodus 31 35. Then there's these strange references, for instance, to um, Balaam, who speaks by the Spirit. You know, in a mission context, um, that invites us to think about how the Spirit's voice, the breath, the, the breath of the divine wind, can literally come from the most unexpected sources, for instance. Not to be closed off to, if you will, this wind of God just coming from the, the pagan, donkeys donkeys the pagan etc etc right i mean so and and you follow that out in the old testament and you're right there's the justice theme there's themes of the lying spirit that goes from micaiah to these other prophets the, the wind of god coming in the you know to to the prophets elijah and elisha there's a spirit that Job bears witness to uh there are just so many very very fascinating mission themes particularly when you read the Old Testament from the perspective of Israel as a nation amidst other nations and called to be the priesthood of God to these other nations. Yeah.
3: Maybe I can dig a little deeper into that actually because as I was listening to your talk, I, I wondered about your references to Joshua and Judges in particular. Um, at the end of the talk, you were speaking about reimagining Israel in light of a pneumatological reading a reading which refocuses us on mission and when speaking about mission you went to Joshua and Judges well you know in Joshua and Judges the you get these guys the spirit will come upon them and they'll pick up a staple gun and go and kill a bunch of people or a hole puncher and do some more damage to some foreigners yeah. in order to maintain the, the, the boundary of yeah. Israel. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I wondered, to what extent, how, how do we reread a text like that? How does a pneumatological reading help us to engage with these difficult texts yeah. in, in the way you were yeah. suggesting?
2: So here's where, yes, a numerological reading doesn't solve all the historic problems in these texts. <laughs> and, and there's certainly lots to be gained from much of the work that has continued to be put into texts like Judges, particularly, um, as well as the conquest narrative, which is the Joshua narrative. Uh, what's interesting is there are no references to the divine wind in Joshua, but there is reference at the end of Deuteronomy to the spirit of Yahweh going from Moses to Joshua. So there's a certain sense in which you could say that the conquest gets carried out by someone who is empowered by the divine breath. So it doesn't, we're not, we're not out of the woods here with regard to the conquest narrative. Um, and, and so from that perspective, again, it's, it's not a matter of this particular reading, you know, gives, gets, us out, gets us out of the difficult issues here. Um, it is, I think, a matter of how might our understanding of Joshua as, if you will, a yahwistically, ruachly-inspired leader also manifest all of the challenges that life in the flesh involves with regard to um, living and then bearing witness. You know, uh, So I think that the Acts 1-8 text, which does... For Pentecostals, it's read triumphalistically, but this reference also to to being martyrs invites a kind of understanding and observation of the spirit and suffering in both Luke and in Acts. (coughs) And how might then those perspectives illuminate the conquest narrative as from one hand on one hand a narrative of triumph, but also on the other hand, a narrative of failure, human failure, a narrative of failure with regard to the the struggles of life in this world. What's interesting, I think, about the, the, the judges' narratives is that, that there and in First Samuel, there are, in rapid succession, quite a number of references to the breath of Yahweh coming upon these judges, and then, if you will, also on Saul and David, uh, more, more sort of nestled in, in that space of these chapters uh, as if an intensified sort of manifestation of wind blowing, and then in other parts of the first can a bit more subdued. One of the things I found that was intriguing is the, the, the narrative sequencing of Judges. Um, three times before Samson, and then three times in the life of Samson. And looking at the ways in which these narrative sequences also paralleled exactly when Yahweh speaks in the Book of Judges. In other words, there seems to be a kind of literary parallel between when Yahweh speaks and when Yahweh's breath appears, right? So this, again, doesn't get us completely out of trouble in terms of the challenges of these particular texts, but it does, I think, give us another perspective on um, can we attend better to the voice of Yahweh as pneumatic sort of instantiations so or pneumatic events, if you will, or to be more faithful to the Hebrew, ruach events, if you will. Yeah.
1: And presumably part of that is, um, is that the narrative of the Spirit is, is almost, you might say, a counter text within the main text in that that narrative of the Spirit is always drawing people back right. towards what it is to be the faithful people of God right. and how, how we live that and... Right. Um, instantiate that. And, um, and clearly, in, in the biblical narrative, not everybody is filled with the Spirit. No. Not everybody is living no. um, pneumatologically. Um, and so, whether actually a, a sort of real attention to the role of the Spirit might help mm-hmm. us be more critical readers?
2: I think, I think that the attending to when, the, when Yahweh's breath is specifically mentioned. And then reading canonically across the text mm-hmm. does, again, uh, invite us to um, notice different things, mm-hmm. right? Um, Than if one were just sort of reading it without that sort of attentiveness. Um, so, from a Pentecostal point of view, I think that it, it both challenges as well as encourages. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a certain focus on the book of Acts leaves us with. What we perhaps might see in much of Pentecostal circles but from a this canonical point of view i think it's still a fairly bereft pneumatology that Pentecostals are inhabiting it's one that's focused on certain passages in the new testament and important ones to be sure but without necessarily again being challenged by being pushed by the broader uh, scriptural witness about when the breath of god blows and speaks and does and disturbs and counters and sometimes surprises and oftentimes disappoints, actually. It's, you know, invites us, I think, to uh, be more attentive to the many, many different ways in which we can be alive in the spirit, Mm -hmm. apart from the stereotypes that oftentimes we develop by spirit-filled language, those kinds of, that rhetoric.
0: If I can, um we come at some of the same issues from a slightly different angle. Um, I'll just ask you a bit about the spirit and culture of that relationship. Because mm-hmm. I guess the points you were making, Chris, about um, in the book of Joshua and Judges and the idea of the spirit inspiring Israel to kind of wipe out its enemies can be read as a sort of very, you know, wiping out cultural difference altogether. Mm-hmm. And I suppose you go to Pentecost and you can read Pentecost in a number of ways, can't you? You can read it as a, you know, the spirit overcomes cultural difference. Mm-hmm. The spirit enables um, people to understand the word of God, whatever language it is, it mm-hmm. doesn't really matter. The languages are sort of erased, and, and, and instead, that understanding takes place. And so, if you like, the spirit uh, you know relativizes or erases cultural difference. I guess another reading of it is, in some ways, to say that actually the the um that cultural difference is actually a, a good thing, and that, that actually within. You know, it's, it's that the languages don't change, that you just, you, you're unable to hear them and understand mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I suppose the, the question, I suppose, is, is how do you read the, the relationship between the spirit and culture? Does the spirit um, kind of, uh, well, erases probably too strong a word, but does the spirit um, kind of relativize culture? So actually it become, brings about a kind of monoculture where mm-hmm. we all understand mm-hmm. the same thing, or actually does, does the spirit <clears throat> kind of inhabit culture in a more... Yeah creative way, or at least, you know, valuing the variety of right, cultures right. that are
2: around? Yeah, so my, um, my proposal would be the Spirit redeems culture. Just like the Spirit redeems languages. right? And languages being part of our cultures are constructed and perpetuated. So that the Pentecost involves a hearing of each one of them in their own languages suggests that God's mission is the redemption of Uh, the many tribes and tongues and peoples and nations in their particularity. And I think one of the things that I found in working my way through, particularly the prophetic texts in the Old Testament, is that there are a good number of places in some of the prophets, in Isaiah in particular, where the breath of Yahweh appears um, not just in and amidst Israel, but in and amidst Israel in relationship to Moab, for for instance, Isaiah 34. Is, is one text. And across Ezekiel, uh, the ways in which the prophet is transferred back and forth, are always into specific geographic, national, ethnic, or cultural spaces. So there's, I think, anticipations in the prophets that um, Yahweh is active amidst Israel to be sure, but amidst Israel to be sure in relationship to surrounding peoples and languages and so on. So. I think all that's very consistent. Uh, When we read, if you will, these prophetic texts and the breath of Yahweh blowing in light of Acts 2, and then vice versa, right? So that, again, now all of a sudden these prophetic texts anticipate Acts 2. Acts 2 provides a certain sense in which it illuminates some of these texts, and it's made me come to a much deeper appreciation of the neighbors that Israel was surrounded by in light of focusing on on the breath of Yahweh and when this breath shows up. It's it's interestingly always in relationship to particular socio-political contexts within which Israel is struggling with what does it mean to be in relationship to these neighbors, whether it's from Saul and David in Deuteronomic history or in the prophets, in which all these other neighboring peoples are around and about. So, um, you know, I don't know, again, that we can say a whole lot about, uh, you know, how do we... How do we interpret these Old Testament texts in light of their authorial contexts? Sometimes determining these authorial contexts might be a little bit difficult. And even trying to place when these, uh, uh, you know, when these were written in relationship to the times in which they supposedly described is all a little bit complicated for many of these texts. But read canonically, it seems, and then missiologically from the way in which I've invited does I think really I think empower us to to think afresh about the fact that particularly in our culture today, in which I you know you you in London know may, maybe better than most other cities in the world that you're surrounded by many tribes and tongues and peoples and languages, and what does it mean to, to have to bear witness in this context in which one is surrounded by and, and works with these neighboring uh, visions and voices? Uh, so I I think that that's in part why I think I've been quite. Uh, uh, and excited about this project because I think it, there's just so much that has relevance for the 21st century context within which we live, uh, particularly from an American point of view in which you know there's all this discussion about the, the Pax Americana and then thinking about both the Roman, the imperial Roman context of the New Testament and then the, all of the ver, uh, varieties of imperial context within which the story of Israel unfolds in the Old Testament. So there's that very, very, very uh, I, I think also uh, in, uh, invitations to read scripture from this demonological, mythological point of view, but within these very, very specific political, cultural realities within which we within work. And I guess that says that the spirit doesn't privilege any
0: particular human culture, um, Roman culture, American culture, British culture, or whatever, which actually begins to make it possible to do mission yeah. in a very multicultural yeah. city yeah. like yeah. London yeah. or other cities. LA and others.
2: There's a certain sense in which actually you might say that the spirit actually opposes imperial culture, right? Um, the, 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 the judgments in Revelation, for instance, are, are clearly of that of that sort. And that might be the only kind of culture in which the spirit definitely <laughs> sort of overthrows at a certain level, yeah.
0: Can I, can I just go on to ask a little bit about... Um, the Spirit and Christology, and this is something Chris might have some interest in as well, as yeah. you think about it from time to time. Because um, uh, you, you talked about, um, uh, in part of your lecture, about uh, you know, one of the ways in which this, the Spirit, one of the primary ways in which the Spirit manifests itself, is in the person of Christ. And I guess, again, there are different readings of that. Is that. Uh, do you see uh, Christ as, if you like, a man filled with the Spirit to the nth degree? to the extent to which, if you like, you know, he is the picture of a human being completely filled with the Spirit, and to the sense that you know, if we were completely filled with the Spirit, we would be able to do exactly what Christ does. Uh, or is there something qualitatively different? It's a kind of qualitative yeah. quantitative question, isn't it? Yeah. You know, is he filled with the Spirit in the way that we are? Yeah. less so, and therefore, if we were filled with the Spirit <coughs> the same way that he was, we could do what he did, or is there something qualitatively different about yeah. Christ as the... As the divine son of God, that marks him off as essentially different from us. So, how do you read that? Yeah, story? that's, that's a Christ
2: question. You know, as a systematician, I think that that question is in part the question about whether one adopts a kind of fundamentally logos Christology as opposed to a spirit Christology, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and certainly there have been centuries of debate about yeah. how to handle that. I think from a canonical perspective, um, in some respects, the scriptural narrative antecedes, if you will, these accounts or, or these ways of thinking through these accounts, right? So I, Luke clearly states that Jesus is a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. On the other hand, um, the Word became flesh. The scriptural, the canonical narrative doesn't, necess- doesn't pit one against the other. And from that perspective, um, I think as a Pentecostal, I would say... I don't necessarily need to have to figure that particular question out. And the more important question is, how do we respond to this message? Um, and of course, one way to respond to it is to try to figure it out. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a theologian, so it's not that I don't try to figure some of these things out, right? But um, the Pentecostal side of me says, how might the figuring out of these kinds of things be related to the way in which we live out our lives? Or the way in which we participate in whatever we think these these texts might invite us to participate in. So, So from that perspective, again, it's not so much that, well, if I'm just filled with enough of the Holy Spirit, I can do exactly what Jesus did. I mean, at a certain level, the New Testament invites us to to embrace that possibility without without necessarily turning us into Christ in in any kind of metaphysical sense, right? But but we're witnesses to Christ. Uh, I think I think that's how the narrative would invite us to respond. So that would be the way in which I would want to, to say, yes, it's precisely as one filled by the Spirit that the Logos now invites us and pours out of his Spirit upon us to enable us to live into the mission of God.
3: So am I right in summarizing your argument that you are, this is a Trinitarian canonical reading that you are looking at via the Holy Spirit?
2: Yeah, and that's a tricky one as well. Because as you know, um, there's a certain sense in which Trinitarian categories are 300 years too late, right? That the Ruach of the First Testament isn't exactly um, a hypothesis of the fourth century. So there's a certain sense in which I'm having my cake and eating it too. There's a certain sense in which I wanna say that a numerological approach to the scriptural witness really fills out and enables a more robustly Trinitarian understanding to emerge. But then the other side of me says that the Trinitarian understanding is not necessarily a 4th century Trinitarian notion. It's not that the 4th century Trinitarian account is invalid. I mean, it's it's one account that was helpful in the 4th century context. To what degree is it helpful today? Well, I mean, to the degree that we might recite the Nicene Confession and find ourselves... um, Encouraged and enabled and inspired and etc. Well, then it's helpful. Um, to what degree do we recite the Nicene Confession in exactly the way in which it was understood in the fourth century? Well, that's an open question, right? But but my point is not so much a Trinitarian vision in exactly the Nicene sense, because I'm not even sure that we really have access to that, right? But but there is something about God as Creator, Redeemer. And sanctifier. There's something about the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. There's something about this kind of Trinitarianism, which is across these pages. And in my perspective, getting a better handle, a better perspective on the breath of God can help us to be better Trinitarians even if not in a, exactly a Nicene sense. I'm not. So this is the, the systematician in me sort of recognizing the historical value of the confessions, but precisely as historical testimonies and contingent in those respects, viable perhaps as well, um, but um, perhaps with an ongoing way in which we retrieve appropriate and maybe live out our faith in a different time.
0: It strikes me that, that if you, you could see the whole,
2: nice, the whole kind of
0: development of the doctrine of the Trinity as a kind of description as far as we can of, if you like, the inner life of God, as if you like a reading back into the nature of God of what we see of what God does in in the temporal missions, right. like the sending of the Son and the sending of the spirit there is as you say, this sort of centrifugal uh, sort of nature to God that he sends the Son he sends the spirit that 's like an kind of original mission in you know, a mission the sending the, it, it is the sending of the son and the Spirit, but then when you read that back into the into the very nature of God, you get the the begetting of the son the procession of the spirit yeah. which if, if you like is that original movement even within the very life of god of which the sending of the son and the spirit are a natural outflowing within history um you know incarnation pentecost so i think there's a continuity between those two things um which is a great the- historical theologian mm. <laughs> <laughs> we have our uses from time to time <laughs> um it's been fascinating to have this part of the evening together to discuss some, some of these questions. Thank you so much for um, both your lecture and uh, for engaging in this um, conversation as well. Thank you very much. That
1: was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.